I was bad. I had to get out right then and there. I can't explain it. I've been around a lot of murder locations, but that was a place where like, no, this is bad. Something's bad around me and I gotta go. Hey guys, welcome back to Dark House. We've got a really fun bonus episode for you this week. Hopefully you've already listened to last week's episode on 10,050 Cielo Drive. If you haven't, stop here and go back. And if you have, get excited because we are going to dig further today with special guest Scott Michaels. Scott was the owner and operator of the Dearly Departed Tours in LA, which took guests on guided bus tours to Hollywood's most infamous locations, including 10,050 Cielo Drive, He also wrote and produced a documentary on the Manson murder victims called The Six Degrees of Helter Skelter, which then inspired a Manson-themed bus tour. So I'm dying to talk to him about Cielo Drive and the other stops on that tour, as well as his work consulting on the set of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. What a niche to get into, and I love the passion. I'm excited to talk to him. Me too. Let's go talk to Scott. Full disclosure, we had a little bit of a technical difficulty during the guest interview, so you might hear a clicking sound during our conversation with Scott, but we promise it's worth listening to anyways. Hi, Scott. Welcome to Dark House. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for asking. Of course. We're so excited to talk to you today. I have a million questions. But before we get into those, I wanted to ask you, where did you begin learning all of the incredible in-depth knowledge that you know? As a kid, I was sort of interested in death, mostly because it was something we weren't supposed to be interested in. We had that weird thing where, you know, you hold your breath when you're passing a cemetery because all your pets will die. That's what we were always told when we were growing up. So, of course, I always wanted to go in because I wanted to see what was so mysterious about it. And also, I lived in a place in Detroit where accidents happened and people were killed in front of my house a lot. That sounds really dramatic, but it's true. Therefore, I was exposed to death at at a young age, so it didn't really phase me. Now, when I came to Hollywood for the first time on a dare, uh, we went into a cemetery and I found Liberace's grave. And it was like everything clicked for some reason. Famous people and death. It just was the magic combination. There used to be a tour in Los Angeles in the 80s called Graveline Tours that used old Cadillac hearses. That was my dream job. And the owner finally, after several years of pastoring him, hired me. I used to go to the ends of biographies to find out how they died first. And the first time I went to, like, the hotel where Janis Joplin died, again, it was just magic. It was like this legend, something physically tangible, something you can actually see or touch, like that hotel or that hotel room, uh, sort of brought it all into a reality. And it was like, you know, people go to the movies and people see movie locations and it's magic to them. Well, to me, where people died is sort of magic. It's... uh, I don't know, it's something physical. They only died in one place. You can go to 100 Frank Sinatra locations, but he only died in one place. So it's sort of pinpointing people. And in cemeteries, you can visit them and they can't get away. Get within six feet of your favorite star. So it just sort of everything clicked in that regard. And I always gravitated towards those types of things. I feel like you fit right in with us. Um, Before we go any further, I did want to just ask, like, what is your relationship with the supernatural or even just like more to the point? Like, do you believe in ghosts and kind of where do you stand on all of that? Sure, I do. Several friends and I, we used to do ghost hunts. They weren't called, you know, paranormal investigations back then. And there wasn't every city that had like an outpost for these sorts of things. Now, we spent the night in the wax museum. We went to the bottom of a bank that had underworld ties and spent the night in the quiet, in the dark. One of the old sound stages from Paramount Studios, uh, again, lights out completely pitch black. And we would just sit there for an hour and, and try to pick up odd things. So, I was always really interested in that, and I have had several paranormal experiences. Um, 
you know, not not dramatic. Well, some would consider dramatic, but it was never anything I felt particularly uh, negative about. I've always had mostly pleasant experiences, uh, a couple of jolts here and there, but uh, it was never anything I felt threatened by, and and I believe in it completely. I just I, I I'm very uh, hesitant to believe, but I do. I do believe it. Well, so speaking of, you know, ghosts, Hadley and I were just talking about the Omen House and just kind of whether or not Benedict Canyon in general, the entire area is either cursed or haunted or something. So I definitely wanted to ask you your opinion on that. And then I think you've been to the Omen House. Oh, David's a friend. Yeah, yeah. I've been to the Omen House many times. I also love your T-shirt. He's wearing a T-shirt that says hashtag Benedict Canyon. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. I didn't even realize that. <laughs> No, I a hundred percent better that Canyon is cursed. Now it's one of those things that you know don't go in there. It's cursed land. I'm always very doubtful of that sort of thing. I, I think it's sort of silly. But like as far as witches cursing places and things like that. Now the Native American stuff is a whole different game. And and there are three or four canyons in Los Angeles that are passageways from Los Angeles to the San Fernando Valley, surrounded by mountains. So it was an often traveled Native American path. And I do believe that that ground is sacred to the Native Americans. And I believe that they may not like what's going on up there. But there's no doubt in my mind that there's something uh, affecting Benedict Canyon more so than any others, because it's indisputable. The physical crimes that have happened to people, maladies, if you will, or deaths, having to do with people that either lived in the canyon or on the canyon, or had something to do with the camp as a resident. There's just too many to dispute it. Could you name some of the other ones? Because I know, like, last year we did an episode on the Harlow Burn House, and we know about Paul Byrne. We obviously, we've talked about the Tate LaBianca murders. Starting from the very bottom, you've got literally at the very bottom is a park where George Michael was arrested. But then you go to the Beverly Hills Hotel, which is right across the street. That's where Peter Finch, the actor, died in the lobby of the hotel. Travel a little bit further, Richard Dreyfus was nearly killed in a car accident. Across the street from that is where Charo lives, one of the top ten classical guitarists in the world, and she's, you know, big and funny and et cetera. But her husband committed suicide in the backyard of her home about two years ago. Traveling a little bit further, Elizabeth Montgomery from Bewitch, Samantha, died in 1995 of colon cancer. Across the street, literally across the street, was where John Ritter lived when he died unusually. He was 1205 Benedict. Go a little bit further and the Cielo Drive, that house where the, obviously the Tate LaBianca murders happened, just below that, Timothy Leary, the drug guru, passed away very publicly. So the Tate LaBianca murders across the canyon, literally you could see it, was the home of Rudolph Valentino, who died in 1932 of uh, very suddenly of a, of a ruptured appendix. The same house was bought by Doris Duke, the tobacco heiress, and she lived there until she died in that house, also in 1995. Her butler, Bernard Lafferty, inherited the house under unusual circumstances. She left like 90% of her billions and billions of dollars to this waiter, basically. There were fights over for years and years and years. They finally paid him off like $500 million to go away. He bought himself, built himself a nice house in Benedict and died in that house a couple of weeks later. I could go on and on all the way up the canyon. Brandon Lee lived on Benedict Canyon Boulevard. And, of course, the Paul Byrne house, where he committed suicide, which was also J.C. Bring's house. A little bit further, Yvette Vickers, the Playboy model. She was Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. She died in her home, and she rotted away for literally months in her home before anyone 
looked in on her. Well, I don't think I know that story, but now I definitely want to. They call her the mummy lady, and then not in a mocking way. It's just they couldn't yeah. even tell if it was yeah. male or female when they discovered the body because it just melted to the floorboards. I do know that Elkie Summer, who was also like a Scandinavian, you know, actress sort of, who was in a movie with Sharon Tate called The Wrecking Crew, uh, had an extremely haunted house in the, in the county. I remember reading about that when I was a kid about how, uh, you know, what plates would fall, you know, wing across the room in front of her. And there are several more. George Reeves, Superman, uh, the original Superman on television, you know, bullet wound to the head. Not even five doors down was where Susan Berman died of a murder. Uh, the jinx guy, Durst, shot in the back of the head. Oh, I just got chills because that story always, it never fails to freak me out. You could walk to all these locations within a couple of hours. It's all up the canyon all the way up. It's a sinister place. The awful, And those are the famous ones that I know about. There's got to be a lot more than I know. And during our pre-pro call, did you mention that you yourself had something weird happen while you were up there? I used to do tours. Unfortunately, my company went out of business because of COVID and lots of other factors. But I did tours. Called the, I did one called the Helter Skelter Tour. It was solely on the Tate LaBianca murders, four hours, 45 miles. And when it was the 50th anniversary of the murders... There was a lot of focus on me because I worked on the Tarantino movie, because I was doing tours. I had a three-day event where people were coming from all over the world to not celebrate, but to acknowledge the 50th anniversary of this horrific incident. On the actual anniversary, we, we decided to have like a, a 60s party to sort of celebrate the 60s rather than concentrate on the murders. Deborah Tate, Sharon's sister, went after me. She thought I was being disrespectful. She deserves every feeling she has. So all this focus was on me. Psychics were telling me, do not go up there on the anniversary. They were saying there's all this negativity. You're the focal point of it. There's all this energy. Don't go up there. I went up there, and my car caught on fire on Cielo Drive. This is a vehicle I maintain every 45 days. By law, I have to do that. I inspect them every single day. I check all the fluids. I check all the you know, belts, everything. And for no reason at all, I was on Cielo Drive, and my van caught on fire on the anniversary. What, there's so many things that happen, you can't dispute it. Since we're talking about the area right now, can you kind of give listeners an explanation of like what the topography or the lay of the land is like? It's very hilly and, and like tree canopied, right? Or in windy roads. So it's not just like flat residential. No, 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 no. It's a canyon that goes from, from Los Angeles over a large hill to the San Fernando Valley. It gets quite windy at the very, very top. And there are cliffs. Like if you were to go off the cliff, there'd be a good, you know, a significant couple of hundred feet drop. Over years, the, ro the roads have been widened and they have guardrails up that didn't used to be up there. But it was quite rustic back in the day. Like Cielo Drive, where the murders occurred, was just a, a asphalt road that was falling apart. It was very rustic uh, by comparison, you know, and now this nicely paved, there's streetlights. It didn't used to be that way. And that's why it was so shocking in, in 1969 when they happened, because it was such a quiet and remote place, literally at the end of a road that no one even traveled, you know, except for the residents. So that's why it was so unbelievable to the neighbors mostly, because most of the world doesn't understand how you know, sort of quiet and desolate it really is, or was. Yeah, I mean, that even reminds me of, of the actual crime. People didn't really hear any of it, which is hard to imagine when you think about how loud it must have gotten. I'm talking about the Manson killings. Even the fact that the person who was in the guest house didn't really hear anything is 
a little mind blowing, but if you've been there, maybe you can imagine because it's more spread out and you hear the sounds of nature and all that. And, and also keep in mind that the house on Cielo Drive was on a cliff. So when Stephen Parent was shot and killed here, the people next door heard the gunshots. People around the canyon heard the gunshots. But because it's on a mountain, sounds are bouncing all over the place, and nobody could isolate where it was coming from. And those neighbors who were only 50 yards away from where Stephen Parent were murdered were like, that must be firecrackers, because... What, who comes up here? You know, it, it, it's so quiet. And when there's a bit of an exaggeration in the book Helter Skelter, when Mr. Bugliosi said it was so quiet, you could hear the ice and the cocktail shakers. But at midnight, you can. You know, you wow. can hear a whisper, wow. you know, from three houses over because it is so quiet. It's almost, it's almost muffled how quiet it That's is. That's a good description of it. And people down below heard the shots and heard the screams. And one guy uh, got in his car and was driving around the neighbors to try to figure out where it was coming from because it sounded definitely like somebody needed help. It was it didn't sound like a joke. And neighborhood dogs were barking, but they just couldn't figure out where the where those noises were coming from. Well, okay. So speaking of your helter skelter tour, I did want to ask, like, what are some of the other stops besides obviously 10,050 Cielo Drive? Right. Well, I mean, we start off in Hollywood and we go into, you know, the history of the victims as well. I mean, we it wasn't solely about the murders, but it was introducing these people as people. We explain how the LaBiancas were on a, a trip, a road trip that afternoon and brought their boat back to Los Angeles because their children had been vacationing with the kids behind them. Well, in the car with them, actually, there's their daughter. And we go to where they dropped off the daughter. We go to where they, they bought a newspaper and explain that Mr. and Mrs. LaBianca were in the car reading the newspaper about the headlines of the murders the night before in Benedict Canyon. So as they were driving home, they were discussing the very thing that was going to be happening to them in about an hour. So we go to where they parked the car. You can see where they, they walk up the driveway. And then I have these audio recordings of the killers. When they are up for parole, they have to recount the crime step by step. So I'll have Leslie Van Houten at the bottom of the hill. We got into the car and Tex went up the hill and Manson went in and tied them up and came back up. Then we went up to the driveway, blow by blow, the killers themselves explaining what they did in that house. And you could see where Manson walked up the driveway next door and hopped the fence and let himself in. We go to Paramount Studios, and Paramount Studios is where Roman Polanski was put up after the murders because he couldn't go home. His home was a crime scene, and everyone was scared for their for their lives. So they brought Roman Polanski to Paramount Studios to stay while everything was going, you know, bananas in Los Angeles. We go to the Sunset Strip where they hung out. Uh, we talk about different myths about, you know, the Charlie Manson auditioning to be in the monkeys and how that started. We went to Mama Cass's house where they all knew each other and, and all hung out and partied. I mean, Manson was there, too. And, and so was, you know, Joni Mitchell. And so was Crosby, Stills and Nash. So all of these people had all, you know, they were intertwined. It wasn't some random thing that happened on that August night. It was very, very intertwined about the La Bianca house quickly. When you went there for tours not too long ago, did you ever see the current occupants? Did you have their permission or would you just kind of go nearby the property? And also, if you do know who they are, have you ever heard any stories from them about what that home is like now and if there's any alleged paranormal activity or anything? Well, the house, the La Bianca house, uh, had been, you know, changed hands several times over the years. And the most recent residents uh, that they sold about 
three years ago. You know, we coexisted. They knew the deal when they bought the house. Uh, if I saw them in front of the house, I'd, I'd go around the block because I didn't want to put them on the spot. It's mm-hmm. not their fault. Mm-hmm. However, they signed up for it. So I, I would see them. They would see me. I'd go all the way around the block. By the time I got back, they were gone. So um, so they didn't really um, probably appreciate it, but we learned to coexist. Uh, and now we, I've never heard of any paranormal activity uh, aside from you know, the, the Omen House in Cielo Drive. But, you know, when the house went up for sale, the anniversary year, the 50th anniversary, Zach Bagans is the one who bought it from uh, Ghost Adventures. Hmm. And he bought it for, I think, a million. The house is in really poor shape. I, I, I'm pretty sure it'll be a teardown, unfortunately. Huh. But I do think that's what will happen to it. Zach hung on to it for a couple of years, never moved into it, said he had planned to do something with it. But uh, chose not to out of respect to the family, which is nonsense. You know, there was there had to be some reason. So circling back just quickly to the Helter Skelter tour, I was wondering, like, were there any common misconceptions that you found, you know, among tour goers of like, was there anything about the either the Manson family or the murders that people kind of either gotten wrong over the years or just like maybe interesting things that you find shock your guests every time? Well, what was shocking to them, I think, was, was, as I mentioned, most of these places are accessible to people. And to see them, I recommend doing a tour because if you're on your own, there's no way you're going to find all this stuff in a, in a succinct amount of time. But the misconception is that there's some sort of, you know, myth about them. And there is a myth, but, but really that they weren't human beings. Until once upon a time in Hollywood, they were people that were in black and white images in a book, you know, and, and they didn't really walk or talk. I mean, Sebring had a couple of videos, but for 40 years before YouTube, nobody saw those videos unless you had these VHSs, you know, from, from a million years ago. Nobody knows what Wojciech Krakowski sounded like or Abigail Folger, you know, what their voices sounded like or Stephen Parrott. So I think because it was so unimaginable that it could happen to people, well, so talking about um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I'd love to hear more about like your experience sort of consulting on the set of that film, like what that was like, and also to hear about which parts of the movie that you felt like they really got right. People that haven't seen the movie think that it's about the Manson murders. And what it was really about was 1969 and this relationship between these two men that were co-workers, colleagues, and friends. But Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski and J.C. Bring were sort of given the day they never had, the day that they were murdered. And it was unbelievable to be on there. Now, Tarantino hired me because several years ago, I did a documentary called The Six Degrees of Helter Skelter. And it was a geographic retelling of the crimes and also sort of the interesting factoids about the victims. And for instance, the night before Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, he had dinner with Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate. I find that really interesting. Yeah. And there's lots of different trivia bits that, that you can add to. Roman Polanski, when, when he was at Paramount Studios hiding out because, you know, he thought he was going to be murdered, you know, two doors down, the Brady Bunch were filming the very first episode. You know, isn't that fascinating? There's lots of synchronicity, yeah. So uh, 1969 was a bizarre year. So that's why he hired me, because he saw my documentary. And we talked for quite a long time about the, you know, the nuances of the crime. And uh, crimes, and he wanted to know the nerdy stuff too. He wanted to know the name of the book that Abigail Folger was reading. He wanted to know what they ate 
at the restaurant. How do you find all of this out? I collect it. I mean, I read everything and I keep all those weird facts in my head. Those are the things that I, I couldn't tell you anything about high school except learning how to type. But I remember things like that. Yeah. You also consulted on American Horror Story. Did you learn anything interesting through that experience? Or like, how did it differ? Was it any scarier? Did anything weird happen on set? Or did you learn anything about like Richard Ramirez? Because I know there was a season about him. Yeah. Uh, no, I only worked on the first season. And I, I solely worked on it as a representing the tour guide because there was a death tour on there. So I, I was involved in production. Now, I was a little bit more involved in Aquarius, which was that David Duchovny show that happened a couple of years after that, where it was all about, you know, the murders and Vincent Bugliosi and Manson. It was a different kind of vibe because they're representing the Manson family, you know, walking around with like suede boots on, you know what I mean? It was all very nice and prettied up and they had hairstyles. And in reality, you know, they were filthy and they're, they're disgusting and they're dirty and they stunk. So that was a bit more prim and proper, uh, Aquarius was. But I'll tell you, being walking into the set of Aquarius on the soundstage and seeing the front of the house and walking into the living room and everything was there. And I was like, wow, this is crazy to be able to, you know, there's the fireplace. There's the sofa. That's the window that Tex crawled into. There's the front door. And when they were building the set, they had a picture of the real front door on the front door. So it was very bizarre. Now, when it came to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, they, they fabricated the house, Cielo Drive, but everything else, you know, they put back Los Angeles to 1969. There was no CGI. There was an entire city block of Hollywood. Every store, record store, movie theater was put back. And, and that was something else because, that you know, this is my... My, I don't want to say my favorite, but it is. It's my favorite era. It's my favorite time. And in this case, it's my sort of go-to favorite thing. So to actually see 1969 and every person walking by and every parking meter and every billboard was put back and I, every bus, every car driving by. And then going to the El Coyote restaurant where the victims had their last supper and standing on the set and watching that yellow car go into the driveway and those four actors representing those four victims with smiles on their faces, you know, walking into the restaurant. It's hard not to get, you know, a little flustered about it because it was history. It was watching these people. And that's the closest thing to time travel I'll ever get. And that was unbelievable feeling. That was, that was wild. Yeah. So I wanted to ask your opinion on like the casting and who you think maybe they got right or was there anybody who was cast who just like freaked you out because you thought the resemblance was so uncanny i didn't know any of them to be honest with you i'm 60 years old so these it's a different era for me i know the name dakota fanning but if she walked up to me i wouldn't know who she is and that was funny <laughs> because when i went there was a there was a scene when well they didn't use the scenes that i worked on primarily in the movie jc brings salon which was recreated in J.C. Bring Salon. That was mind-blowing. Wow. The Burn House, my friends owned that house that was also J.C. Bring's house. So they shot up there for a week, but that footage never made it into the movie. Did they shoot at the actual house? Yeah, exteriors. And I took Tarantino up there and introduced him to my friends. And he was like, I love this. So they, they redid the pool. They cut down some trees. They put the hot tub back. And like a half a second of it ended up in the movie, literally like a half a second. But Barbara Ling, who was the production designer, she said, you know, everyone knows he made a four and a half hour movie. 
Did you think that the representation of like Cielo Drive and the 10,050, that house was accurate? Because I think you said you helped sort of figure out what the props would be. Is that right? A lot of them, yeah. You know, the music on the piano and a lot of the, a couple of the songs in the movie came from me, actually. Terry Melcher originally rented the house with Mark Lindsay from Paul Revere and the Raiders. And Mark Lindsay told me about the songs that they've written in the house on the piano that was in the room where the murders happened. And then, uh, so, so the house was being rented, furnished, completely furnished. So they were sleeping. They were, you know, the sofa was the same sofa that they were using. The piano in the room where the murders occurred is the same piano that they were using. So these pop songs were, a couple of them made it into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Tarantino wanted to know the different elements of, of the house and, and because he wanted to, he wanted to set the scene as accurately as possible. So he used as much of Cielo Drive as he possibly could until it wasn't Cielo Drive anymore. You know, when the Tate house was there, it was the Tate house, and there were two houses coming up next, and now there's five. So Tarantino used as much of Cielo Drive as he possibly could until that first new house was built. And then they cut to another house uh, by Universal Studios. Uh, they did a pretty good job of recreating the setup, we'll say that. You know, it looked a lot bigger and flashier than it does in real life, but I don't think that could be avoided. I also wanted to ask about your documentary, Six Degrees of Helter Skelter. Like, what made you want to produce and write that? Did you feel like you know, in all the research you've done, that there was a sort of like a narrative around this that was missing? Or like, did you just want to kind of dive deeper into like the tours you've been doing? Or what was your motivation there? Well, it was an element of wanting to memorialize things. At that point, I didn't have a health sculpture tour because I didn't think it was physically possible to, to include everything that needed to be included. And, you know, because sitting in a bus for four hours, it's difficult, you know, to sign up for. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, you know, people were happy that they did for the most part, as far as I know. Uh, but I didn't want to go into the race war business. I didn't want to go into why. I don't care why they did it. And also, the, a lot of the locations are no longer there. So it was nice to uh, memorialize them, like you said, to you know, show people the way things were as much as they possibly could. And where can people watch the documentary if they're interested in seeing it out? It's, I think it's on YouTube now. I think somebody uploaded it to YouTube. Six Degrees of Helter Skelter. Yeah, you can find it on YouTube. And otherwise, I sell them on my website, dearlydepartedtours.com. Okay, awesome. And I wanted to ask, what are some of the popular stops on your more general, like, tragical history tour through L.A.? Well, you know, that was a, about 100 locations. You know, and it was a lighthearted look at the dark side of Hollywood, the, the regular duly departed tour. So we would pass, say, Mae West's house, and then the Happy Days house, and then the Rebecca Schaefer murder location, and then Marilyn Monroe's house, and then Jean Harlow's house, her other house, the one she lived in when she died, and then the Menendez house. So it was a well-balanced tour, you know. So um, on that tour, we had a lot of, you know, husbands and wives and partners, and Helter Skelter to a lot of solo writers, you know, because you have to really have an interest in that particular case. Definitely. Can I ask a question about L.A. in general? Are there any parts of the city, neighborhoods or specific like restaurants, shops, whatever, that have creepy backstories or that don't, but just in general, you think have a kind of haunted feeling? And if so, what are they? They say that people that are killed don't know they're dead yet. I, I tend to think that people will go where they're happiest. You know, people say, don't go to the cemetery because they're haunted. Well, who would want to hang out in a cemetery? You know, who wants to hang around their corpse? So they would want to go to someplace they have sort of, you know, an emotional attachment to. 
So a lot of the restaurants, like the Comedy Store, for instance, now there is a place that has kind of a sinister you know, vibe to it. The Comedy Store on Sunset Strip, which was the former location of Ciro's Nightclub. And, uh, and they say that there were mob hits in the basement. Now, I, I went into the basement. I was in there for a long time. I didn't feel anything. But that's a place where people say, oh, it's crazy, crazy haunted in there. Now, there was a room in the Roosevelt Hotel that I felt really, really threatened in. I'm contradicting what I said earlier in this discussion, because there was, there was a couple of times when I felt like I need out. I went into the Wonderland house, and I went to where all the victims were. And when I was on the top floor and I sat where one of the victims was, was murdered, I know it was bad. I had to get out right then and there. I can't explain it. Uh, was it a panic attack? I don't know. I've been around a lot of murder locations. I've been in a lot of places where... You know, you, you speak in hushed tones, and knowing what happened there, you're awed by it. But that was a place where, like, no, this is bad. Something's bad around me, and I got to go. Had you been to the Cielo Drive house before it was the original was demolished? Because I think your tour started after the fact, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't move to L.A. until 94. Now, okay. when I visited, I'd seen the original house several times, but I'd never been in it. When they were destroying the house, I had been on the property and there were still hauling parts of the original house away. So I was up there for that and saw some of that up close, but I never got in to see the original house. That would have been something. I think on our pre-pro call, we were talking about something about one of the walls from the kitchen or something that they kept. Yeah. So the house was purchased by two brothers. Their name was Weintraub, and they demoed the house. Now, when they demolish a home in Southern California, it happens all the time. There's a law that if you leave up a load-bearing wall of the original house, you can leave up one wall and build a whole new house around it, and it counts as a remodel instead of a build. There is one original wall in that house from the Tate house. That's fascinating. So wait, where, how did you find that out, too? Because I'm like, this is like incredible information. I mean, I got a bookshelf behind me of, you know, three shelf loads of books having to do with this case. What are some of your favorite books, aside from Helter Skelter, what are some that maybe people haven't heard of yet, but you definitely think they should look into if they're interested? Helter Skelter, people give it a lot of flack because of that whole race war business, which I understand. Mr. Bugliosi, the prosecutor, needed to get a prosecution. So he wove together this bizarre story to prosecute. It's no worse than the musical Mamma Mia. You know, you have 15 songs and you try to loosely create a plot around them. And... Bugliosi just took all these different factors and wove it into something and using the Beatles and made this thing out of it. So Helter Skelter, the book, is widely thought of as complete fiction. It's not. It's a complete documentation of where things happened, when they happened, what was used, you know, the setting the scene, what they what the victim's last moments were, what life on the ranch was what the prior arrests were, where the gun was found. You know, all of these facts are in this book. So say what you will about the philosophy, it's still a fact book. It's a complete documentation of the case and of the trial itself. So it's a complicated, really lengthy book, but it's still the one I consider the, you know, the quote-unquote Bible. There was a book called, originally published uh, shortly after Helter Skelter, called The Family, which was sort of like the storybook version. Factual, but life on the ranch, what these people were really like. But everyone involved with the family has their own book, usually. And there are facts to glean from that. Tex Watson wrote his own book. You know, he's full of it. I mean, he's never taken really responsibility. He's always blaming Manson, always, always, always. But he recounts the crime. So there's things to, to take from that. 
the book that made a lot of things click for me was Susan Atkins' book. She wrote a book first off called Child of Satan, Child of God, which was nonsense. She was still she was still in prison. It was like the first five years. But the last one she published was called The Myth of Helter Skelter, and it spelled a lot of things out that, that made things click in my mind. So I take little facts from all of these books, and I come up with something in my own head. Now, Chaos, that book by O'Neill a couple of years ago, was a really interesting book. He came up with some really interesting theories. He had uh, his own agenda, I think, when he wrote it. So if you glean through a lot of that stuff, then you go with the facts. I, I thought that was a pretty interesting read, too. So one specific book would be difficult to name, and it's it's hard it's hard to get through some of them. It really is. Those are all good suggestions, though. Like, I definitely want to go read the Susan Atkins one. That one's a quick read. And Texas Book is on his website, too. So you can flick through it and get to that. You know, his accounting of the crime is very interesting. He was there. And that's the other thing is that the facts that come from this crime are mostly from the murderers. When you're talking about Sharon Tate begging for her life, you know, that's one of the murderers telling you that story. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt, too. Just quickly, I'd love to circle back to the Omen House. Did anything weird ever happen to you while you've been there? Yeah, I, well, as I say, David's a pal. I've been in the house several times. There's a, there's the, I don't like going into the basement. You know, that could be just because it's, you know, almost underground. And that could be part of it because it's so quiet down there. And again, it's like it's like your pillows over your ears. But, um, you know, there are lots of creeks and things like that. You know, things that go bump in the night, I suppose. But the one time I was talking to David, I was standing in his dining room. He was in front of me. There was a little bar that separated the kitchen, you know, you could sit at. There was, so there was a physical barrier and the kitchen was behind him. And as I was talking to David, this, this pile of solo cups behind him, you know, just bashes and goes flying everywhere. It's like, you know, and David's like, there you go. And, uh, you know, there's no parlor tricks going on there. I will say that most of the, I've done three episodes of Ghost Adventures. If you hear the, the slightest type of my ankle, you know, like one of my fingers, I went like that and it, and it cracked. You know, the whole production, you know, like they all stopped and were like, what was that? What was that? You know, so there's a lot of that, but I've never seen any kind of phony stuff go on. I, I will say they're dramatic, but I've never seen any fabrication go on on the show. And and as far as David, like I said, there's a lot of things that go bump in the night, uh, but there's too much of it to, to discount it. Yeah, that's fair. So you also have had the Dearly Departed like Artifact Museum, but that is closed too, right? That's right. Yeah. When we closed, we put everything in storage. So, you know, Mae West's teeth and <laughs> and, uh, and and Rock Hudson's bed are all locked up. Uh, and the Jane Mansfield car, that's that's in storage, too. And we're going to hopefully open that back up in Palm Springs at some point. Well, because I was going to ask, like, did anything ever creepy happen with any of the artifacts? Well, I'll tell you, when when I told you I went up to the to the Tate house before they tore it down, I asked one of the workmen for a brick, and he said, well, there aren't any bricks, but there's you know, flagstone from the fireplace, and he pointed out to a pile over there. And he said, I can't give you one now, but I'll leave one outside the gates for you. You can come back later on tonight and pick it up. So I went back, and he didn't leave it for me, but the other side of the fence was this pile of flagstone. So, you know, <laughs> you can use your imagination. <laughs> But a lot of the, well, I shouldn't say, you, so that's straight. I have, you know, a bucket of these bricks or these pieces of flagstone. 
Now, I had all of this stuff in my home at one point in time when I lived in Hollywood still. And a couple of times I was laying in bed and I saw a person standing in my doorway, a shadow of a person. Uh, I just knew it was male. That's all I knew. And just standing there looking at me and then turning and walking. And, and it happened two times. Uh, and I've had psychics in my house because, you know, what I do kind of grab, you know, we go hand in hand mm-hmm. and that sort of, sort of thing. I do believe in it, but I, I also don't. I'm not all involved in it. You know, but I have friends that are psychic and they come over and, and they go straight to my laundry room, which was just next to my uh, bedroom. And that's where the, this box of rocks from the Tate house was. So when I opened my first museum, everything went out of my house. You know, I got nothing left in my house. And after that, the only things I ever saw or felt were, you know, people I knew, um, which only happened once or twice, but, but I knew who it was. But the first time it happened, there was somebody there I didn't know. But I think they may have been attached to that stuff. Because these things contain energy. You know, say what you will, the, the events of those of that night you know, this, these, these flagstone pieces saw it. You know, these events echoed off of these, of these pieces. So that's why I collect the things I do. I mean, they're gone now. The Ambassador Hotel is gone now. But I have a piece of the floor that Bobby Kennedy was killed on. This is history. You know, things that you can actually touch. So, I, yeah, I do think that so much um, focuses on them that other people are giving them, you know, some sort of attention or energy that they might want, but also echoes of what did actually happen. Fascinating. So sometimes I'll look at the stuff that I collect and think, oh, this is just stupid. This is just pieces of wood or or brick. But other people come in and see it. And my, and my faith in what I do is restored because they feel the same way, you know, that I feel about this stuff. It's, it's important, you know. Not, the buildings are gone, a lot of them. So here's something you can see that was part of that. You can still touch these things of a bygone era. And that to me is, is very important. I love that. Well, this has been amazing, but I wanted to make sure. So I know that Dearly Departed tours aren't happening in person anymore, but you have a lot of content online that people can view. So could we just like let everybody listening know how they could kind of check out your tours online? Well, I appreciate that. So Dearly Departed tours on YouTube. And, you know, I did a complete background on the LaBiancas. I went to where they worked and where they lived and the stores they went to and the details of what actually happened to them, how horrific it was. I did a feature on Stephen Parent, the young man who just happened to be at the house that night and was the first or depending on how you look at it, the last of the victims. But nobody knows who he was. You know, there's a high school picture of him with glasses on looking, you know, kind of 60s nerdy. But I went to his house, and I went to his school, and I went to where he worked, and there's a total background on this guy that nobody ever knew. I give a good idea of what he was as a person, as best as I know, and as best as I've been gathered. Some people doubt whether the, the party ate at the El Coyote. So I combed through their autopsies, and the LA County coroner is a friend of mine. So we went through them together to find out you know, what the victims actually had, physically had in them, and whether they did eat at the, the El Coyote that night. So, you know, I go into that kind of detail in the background, but it's mostly old Hollywood is what I do. Since my museum is in storage, I'll take out a piece that that, uh, I particularly like, and I'll give you the background of it, and a lot of times we'll go, I'll take it back to where it came from. And, uh, you know, here's a piece of this house that was right here, and here it is. So, and I do have a podcast, the Dearly Departed podcast, where we take movies or television programs, and we dissect the people and how they died. You know, this week we released one on the cast of Bewitched, which is 
huge cast. And uh, each one of those main-ish characters, uh, we went into their lives and, and their deaths and what happened to them. Like Abner Kravitz, for instance, Mr. Kravitz, the, the man that lived next door, when he died, his, his body was in the back of a station wagon going to the mortuary, and the station wagon was stolen. And these thieves didn't know they had a body in the back oh of it. Oh, my gosh. Ew. I always said it was the things you didn't know about the things you thought you knew everything about. And that's that's sort of become my job. And it's all online now. I'm going to check some of it out for sure. Yeah, 100%. Maybe during daylight hours. <laughs> yeah. No, I promise it's not too scary. Well, I'm definitely excited to go check more out. I was digging on your YouTube last night. But this was great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. As expected, that was fascinating. And the whole time he was listing off like the weird deaths that have kind of happened in Benedict Canyon, I was making mental notes about, you know, I need to go back and Google these because I tried Googling it myself and I couldn't find anything. Me too, me too. So it was really nice to be able to talk to somebody who's like in the community and and knows the area and the, the local lore, I guess, really well. Yeah, and also to give us something to do next time we can't sleep. Maybe not next time I can't sleep, but definitely sometime I'm bored. Um, I also loved hearing about the ghosts that were like tied to the flagstone from 10,050 Cielo Drive or the original house. That really creeped me out. Yeah, that was an interesting little, especially because, I don't know, I feel like he brought it up like it was no big deal. And I was like, what? Sorry, what happened? I know. Well, that's what I mean about how, you know, I going into this, I was like, okay, like, I don't know what I'm going to find in terms of creepy paranormal activity. This could have happened there. But Mm -hmm. that to me, I'm like, whoa, like that was a really interesting anecdote that I wasn't expecting to hear at all. Yeah, totally. If anybody else has random stories from Cielo Drive that you want to share with us, let us know. Let us know what you thought of today's episode and leave us a note in an Apple review. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 